Welcome to the Off Trail Podcast. I'm Constantine. And I'm Magpie. And this is a show about life outdoors. Come take a step with us into what it takes to be a hiker, backpacker, rock climber, cyclist, or any other type of outdoor adventure. Let's get to stepping. Alright, so welcome back to the Off Trail Podcast. My name is Constantine, and well, today we have a unique show for you. So, first, let's welcome back Christine Thurmer, or German Tourist. So, Christine, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. Thanks for having me, but you have to practice my last name. It's not Thurmer, it's Thurmer. Thurmer, T-H is pronounced differently in Germany. (laughs) We'll we'll get there, we'll get there, Constantine. Oh, we'll 100% get there. We're going to be doing a lot of this as people are listening right now and being like, didn't you just have Christine on? But yeah, so we will get there because uh, (laughs) we're getting to know each other more and more and getting to unpack some intricacies here. So, Thurmer, 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 Thurmer. I said it three times fast. That's, it's my in my brain now. So for everybody that's listening, um, Christine and I started chatting after we had our first podcast show. And as you all heard, she has explored all across Europe, pretty much all across the world on different hikes, different trails, different adventures. And she has a knowledge base that few do have. So we started chatting and she suggested doing a show or a group of shows that really dive into what it is like to hike, at least for Americans, what we quantify as overseas in Europe, New Zealand, Australia, what have you. So I guess the first show that we're going to kind of focus on, since it's such a big, big consumption of information to tackle, is through hiking in Europe, her kind of specialty. So Christine, as we start to dive into this topic, I guess the first question that we're going to kind of roll with is, just broadly, what is the initial difference between hiking in Europe for you and hiking in the United States? Okay, just, um, it's basically two words. Whereas when you hike in the US, it's almost all the time about wilderness. Mm-hmm. It's national parks, wilderness, untouched uh, landscape. So if you go to the US, you want to be away from civilization. In Europe, uh, the context is more like culture because Europe has been inhabited for so long, uh, there's hardly any wilderness left. So if you hike in Europe, you basically will always, always find some traces of civilization and you will find a lot of cultural traces. So this is the big difference. And for me, I want to say this before we start this, uh, re- uh, before we start this podcast, is there's no better or worse. Mm-hmm. Like because each each country, each continent has its inferiority complex. It's like Europeans think, oh, there's no great hiking here in Europe because we don't have any wilderness, and uh, so it's 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 not better or worse. It's just very very different. And yeah. I had the impression when the very few times Americans or North Americans come over to to Europe for hiking, they have their own mindset. They want to hike in Europe like they do it in the U.S. And I think they miss most of the good part in, in in Europe. So this is the idea behind this podcast to show, hey, it's just different. So you also need a different approach. And I guess the intricacy of that even question is, as you define the difference, wilderness and culture, but there's still wilderness in Europe, correct? Like it's not purely walking from metro town to metro town you still can have snippets of wilderness in there well if you want wilderness and this is where europeans go if they want a real big adventure they go to scandinavia Mm. which is like real real big wilderness because the climate is so bad that you cannot like have agriculture or big cities so all northern europe is still wilderness some parts of scotland and there is like of course we have national parks uh all over europe so it's it's not like actually uh because you mentioned like going from one metropolitan area to the next one actually we have a lot less metropolitan areas we don't have as much urban sprawl as you have in the u.s okay. so basically hiking from one town to, to, the, to another is, is very very pleasant because there's forests everywhere like one third of germany and one third of like basically uh, central europe is forested okay. so um it's not like uh, urban sprawl it's, it's really nice scenery but in the scenery in the forest you will see like chapels way crosses god knows what you will see signs of civilization Okay, so like, at least in my mind, and I think a lot of Americans' minds, when they think of European hiking, maybe their initial thought is the Camino de Santiago. So like, that's a lot of introduction to European hiking for a lot of Americans. So they think of this and they're like, well, you hit a town every day or two, 
but a lot of the time you're also on cobblestone paths, bike paths, whatever it is. Is that a standard in Europe, or is that very specific for the Camino Santiago de Santiago? Okay, uh, the Camino de Santiago is actually some of the worst hiking you can possibly do in Europe. Oh. So <laughs> we will, uh, I think we will touch on that later, but uh, uh, pilgrimage trails like the Camino de Santiago is not really hiking. Mm-hmm. Big difference between pilgrimage trails and hiking. So hiking trails in Europe are almost never ever on, or very, very rarely on as on concrete. So you'll be hiking through forest, you'll be hiking on trails or forest roads, but uh, you'll very, very rarely be hiking on roads. Okay. So if the Camino, we'll touch on that, yes, like you said in another show. So if the Camino de Santiago is not the quote-unquote standard, so like what is the quintessential European hike? If you could pick one that you've done, what gives you the feel of like the classic or the standard European hike? Like if you think of the U.S. hikes, you think of, the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, as the quote-unquote standard, what would be a European standard? Um, this is this is a good question because there is no standard hike in Europe because hiking in Europe is basic is like country-wise. Like each country has a different tradition of hiking, different trail system, uh, different people who manage the trails. There are European trails. There's actually eleven one of them. Hmm. There's a, a European organization called the European Ramblers Organiz- Association. And they have created 11 European long distance trails, E1 to E11. Problem is nobody hikes them. <laughs> so uh, they are not marked as like E1 or whatever. They're just pieced, they have just pieced together existing hiking trails. So again, you have, you have to see hiking in Europe is a different concept. In the US, if you live, let's say, in Chicago or in Los Angeles, if you want to go for a hike, you have to drive a long way to get to a national park or to public land to go hiking. So it's not like you can just grab your backpack, get out of your door and go hiking. Mm. So hiking is something you do on a long holiday, but not on a regular basis. In Europe, that's very, very different because there's a hiking trail everywhere. So basically hiking is something that uh, people do every weekend or even like in the evening. Oh, it's like uh, we start working at 3, 3 p.m. We just go on a, on a short hike. So hiking is something is is a popular as a popular sport, and everybody does it on a regular basis. <clears throat> but they don't do long distance hikes. It's something to do, as I said, on a weekend or maybe on a two or three week holiday. Huh. Well, that's curious that you touched on that. There's no, I guess, standard of what a comparison hike would be. So, like you said, each country is so different that I don't know. That that kind of boggles my mind personally. That there's nothing that you can say, well, this is how you would experience most other trails in Europe, but I guess the intricacies, since you can move from country to country so quickly, or quickly in a loose, broad term of it, that it is always changing. So you could hop on, I don't know, for example, let's say E1, and I don't know where this goes through, but you could potentially move through four or five countries within a few weeks. Okay, actually, the E1, I've hiked it entirely. <laughs> the E1 is something like, uh, um, I think something like six to 7,000 miles, Ooh. miles. It's from the North Cape to Sicily. So it's like Europe from north to south. Okay. And you pass through, I don't can't tell you exactly, but it's something like 10, 11 countries. Mm-hmm. You, you can't do it in a couple of months. It will take you like um, an entire year or even longer or two seasons. And... The good thing about it is, let's say if you hike the Pacific Crest Trail, if you hike the Appalachian Trail, you spend like half a year doing it. But uh, in this half year, it's the same country, it's the same language, it's the same culture, and it's the same McDonald's food everywhere. (laughs) So if you hike uh, 4,000 kilometers in Europe, it will be several languages, several countries, and the food will differ tremendously depending on which country you are. So, so this is the main, main difference. This is what's, what's peculiar about it, what's so special about Europe. So I guess, again, from your own personal experience, it might be different. But for somebody looking into these trails, how would you logistically handle 10 to 11 countries? Because, like you said, in the U.S., you might be hiking through states, but there's really no border crossing. There's really no language barrier. There's really no gap between these states. Like you just go and you're in the same country. So when you're hiking in Europe, especially on a long trail, how do you handle the logistics of passing through so many countries? 
Well, we have something it's called the EU, European Union. So there is no border control anymore. So inside the Schengen countries, which is most of the European countries, you just move freely from one country to another. So if as a North American, you want to go to Europe, you get a Schengen visa. And once you're inside the Schengen area, you can move freely from one country to another. No border control, no border control, no nothing. Oh, okay. Well, that makes it way easier. So, so it's it's even it's even better because like uh, there's another thing that all through guys need now, which is cell phones and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and as uh, and internet reception. Mm-hmm. So we have something that's called EU roaming for a couple of years now. So if you go to one country, let's say Germany, you buy a SIM card, a European a German SIM card, you can use it without paying more in any other European country. It's the same price. Wow. phone calls for data that's very and, very handy yeah yeah and this is another thing that it's, it's sort of like mind-blowing for for americans i once sat in a plane flying to the u.s and there was this uh american girl and she had just come to europe and she told me how much she had paid for a zim card to make phone calls in europe i said this is just totally stupid go <laughs> to europe buy a zim card there so for example i pay for, for unlimited calls text messages and uh, 12 gigabit gigabyte of data i pay 18 dollars 18 dollars wow <laughs> so, so and i can use this 12 gigabyte of data in any european country so if you come to europe don't think of like oh i get a data plan from whatever my provider in the u.s just go to europe go to any shop buy a zim card there you can use it in any eu country Wow, that is a very handy piece of information to have. I'm going to actually even personally probably use that piece of information. <laughs> um, so, okay, so there's no, I guess, barrier to cross physically into these countries when you're on a long trail in Europe. But there is, I guess, a language barrier. So if you're crossing through so many countries, I, I guess even going as far as to say not just a language barrier, but a uh, I guess the best term for it is a consumption consumption of information barrier. So comparing it to the U.S., like there's even intricacies along the CDT, the PCT, where the management of the trail can differ and the different land utilizations, the map overlays can change um, because you're going into different states and there's different organizations that manage these areas. So how do you wrap your head or get prepared to go through so many different countries and have to consume so much types of information in so many different ways. Okay. Another difference between the US and Europe is that um, hiking or these outdoor recreational sports is big business here. So um, whereas in the US it's volunteers maintaining the trails, in uh, Europe it's mainly government organizations. Because uh, they say, okay, hiking tourists or outdoor tourists bring money into the communities. So whereas in the U.S., the communities say, oh, no, we don't want a hiking trail because then we cannot go hunting or we have sort of like property issues or God knows what. We don't want these hikers here. Mm-hmm. In Europe, it's a different thing. Say, hey, you want to create a new hiking trail? Great, go for it. Please to bring it through our village, bring it through our town because then we have the hikers and they will buy food. They will stay in our hotels. So... Because it's government institutions behind it, there's lots of information because they want to lure tourists to come there. Most of the times you will get free brochures. You have lots of information on the internet, uh, lots of information for free. You can even get brochures for free. Just send send them a mail and they will send you like free hiking guides or free brochures for this in this area. Okay, so, so, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, let's take, for example, again, the E1, which you've done. So when you're crossing from the country of Italy to, oh, geez, don't test my geography. When you're crossing... Switzerland. Switzerland. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for not making me pause and sit in that myself. Um, when you're crossing from Italy into Switzerland, does your map system change? Are you using the same maps? Like, do you have to go to the tourism board? Like... How do you access that new information every time you cross into a new country? Okay, now we go to another thing that oh. apparently North Americans don't know or don't use so much, and it's called OSM. Yes. OSM is the abbreviation for Open Street Map. So we talked about this before, and then apparently even you were not very familiar with that. So let's mm-hmm. let's explain what OSM means. Mm-hmm. Uh, OSM is a crowdsourcing project which was which was uh, founded in two thousand and four. 
the idea behind it is that back then, outdoor enthusiasts and people who like who needed maps said, "Hey, right now we have to pay for map data because it's like uh, government organizations or people like uh, Garmin or other providers who sell us their map data, either digital wise, digitally, or paper maps." This, we don't want this because this is like a, this is like an open source project. So we collect our data ourselves. Mm-hmm. So everybody who went hiking, uh, all the members of OSM who went hiking, they collected data like, hey, there's a parking lot here, or there's a lamppost there, or a whatever power line, and they put the waypoints on this OSM map. And this movement became bigger and bigger and bigger. OSM right now has more than 5 million active users. Active user means people gathering data. Two-thirds of these active users are located in Europe. Most active users are actually based in Germany. Oh, wow. So this movement became so big and the data so good that the government institutions or the commercial providers said, hey, they have much better data than we have. So let's combine forces. So they gave away their data, which is which is usually contour lines or where does this river go? How high is this mountain? They gave away their data and it was enriched. It was the base layer for the data that OSM people gathered, like, oh, there's a lamppost there or a power line there. So all these data are now in this project called OpenStreetMap, which is the database uh, you can download for free on the internet. So uh, for Central Europe, there's no better commercial maps than OSM, mm-hmm. so, which is free. So you just Google, like you want to go to Italy or you want to go to Switzerland or whatever, you just Google OSM map Switzerland and you download it for free onto your cell phone or onto your GPS device and that's it. So it sounds like you can see, oops, sorry. So it sounds like you can seamlessly transition from country to country with this map overlay or this map system. So it's not like as soon as you get into a new country, you have to scrap whatever map you were using previously and get a new one. Like if you're, again, using the example of the E1, you can find that entirety of that route on OSM and just use that so it's not as, not as logistically challenging to have to get a new map every country you go to. Well, you have to get a new, you just have to download it and that's okay. it. And uh, because OSM doesn't only include like power lines or parking lots, it also includes what's called relation. A relation is a trail. So people have marked, okay, here is the E1 and it's marked on the trail. So you download the OSM and say, hey, show me the hiking layer. And on the hiking layer, we'll see, oh, there's a blue line or a red line or whatever. And it's the E1. So you just follow it on, on your smartphone. Okay. And I know we were chatting about this before the show, and it's a loose comparison here for American and Canadian listeners is, um, I know you said this wasn't completely right, and but the comparison I have for people listening is, at least in my experience, Gaia, uh, Tapos, as well as Caltopo, um, they have a public overlay system for publicly recorded tracks on there, and the overlay, it looks like the OSM is more in-depth, but at least... For people listening, so you can kind of picture it in your head, that's at least the best comparison I would have. And again, they are different here, um, the way that they collect data, all of that stuff, but just to kind of put it into relation a little bit. Um, but yeah, um, the OSM, <laughs> that's going to be something I definitely use in the future as well. I want to circle back after we got the maps kind of situated here. So people can use the OSM, travel freely, but I want to circle back to the language barrier because I don't think we touched on that. So you go in, you have your map system, you're ready to hike, you're got your gear, you're going after it. So how do you handle going from country to country and having these language barriers? How do you go into a trail town and ask for your needs? Like, yeah, how do you handle the language barriers for each country? Okay, because there's so many countries in Europe and there's so many small countries in Europe, nobody expects you to speak their language. Let's say you go to Lithuania. Mm-hmm. Lithuania has two million, inhabit- two million inhabitants only. So none of these Lithuanians expect you to speak Lithuanian because only two million people speak it. So the smaller the country, the more these people will speak English. Mm. Like, uh, especially in smaller countries like uh Lithuania or let's say Sweden, Norway, uh, nobody speaks Swedish or Norwegian either. So they get all their movies from the US. Mm. 
And because the country is so small, it's not worth dubbing them. So they work with subtitles. So from, from age five or four years on, you're watching TV, which is in English. Oh. So you, you learn English automatically. So most Europeans speak English very, very well, especially in small countries because they don't have any other choice. But so I guess, again, this might be a biased question on my own thought here is like, how do you not step on cultural toes? Because like, I know nobody wants to be the uh, quote unquote quintessential American tourist that goes in and just is like, everybody should speak my language. Like, why am I, why is nobody understanding me? So like, how do you go in there and be polite about the culture you're experiencing while still trying to communicate properly? Okay. Uh, let's go back to the to the TV thing. Yeah. Uh, this only works with young people, like people 30 and younger, they have learned English at school, and they will speak pretty well because they have traveled, their literature at universities in English, so no problem there. All the people, especially in Eastern Europe, they have not learned English at school, they have learned Russian, but definitely no English. And if they live in the middle of nowhere, in let's say in the Transylvanian mountains, you won't encounter any English speakers. Mm. Still, they do not expect you to speak Romanian or Lithuanian or God knows what. You're a foreigner for them, so you're a miracle anyway. So it's <laughs> like they will try to understand you. The, uh, the miracle thing is called Google Translate or whatever translation program you have. Okay. So uh, people are used to that. I mean, I traveled like in countries like Bulgaria. And my landladies usually were like older ladies, like age 60 plus, mm -hmm. but they all knew how to handle Google Translate voice recognition. Sometimes they forgot to turn their voice recognition on. So they just, they just started yelling to, to their smartphone, into their <laughs> smartphone, because the louder we speak, the more Google will understand it. Mm -hmm. But uh, they are basically familiar with that. And uh, so just whip out your smartphone, whatever translation program you have, type it in uh, or speak, your, speak it in and uh, it will be translated. So this is how you do it when you have a face-to-face -face communication. Mm -hmm. And if you want to do, this is another trick, if you want to reserve, let's say a hotel, which is like difficult sometimes. If you want to reserve a hotel and, the, and your hotel or your accommodation is not on, booking platforms like booking.com or whatever you use. Then uh, find out the phone number of this place. And usually in Eastern Europe, because the landlines are so bad, everybody has a cell phone. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you just send a text message. And the text message, you can just pre-translate on Google Translate. And this person will just and say, and you end with it like, just reply yes or no. And they will send you a message back. You can put it into Google Translate again and see what this person has said. So it's very, very easy. Don't don't mess with calling. They won't understand you anyway. Just send either an email or just send a text message and that's it. Okay, so I guess it's just part of the expectation there. So it's not like they get upset that somebody's bumbling in and can't speak, can't speak their language for the vast majority of experiences you've had. It's just they see somebody and they see that they're not a local and they kind of expect to have a little bit of intricacy as you work through the conversation skills. Exactly. So especially, see, you are not going to big uh, tourist destinations. You're going to the, into the countryside. So uh, people would just be curious. They are not overwhelmed by tourists. So they would just be curious and see, hey, there's an American. Actually, you have like a, a, a good bias because Americans don't venture into like uh, rural areas in Europe. Mm -hmm. So they'll be, wow, this must be an interesting person. They don't go to, let's say, Munich or Paris only. They go to our little village. So, wow, we should welcome them. Oh, well, th that is, again, good. Just I hope everybody is getting stuff out of this. Again, this is just good personal information. To have. It makes me feel more comfortable. So I guess a uh, second side to that same question is, okay, so the communication barrier is not a massive issue. You might have to play around with it more to just get the message across sometimes, but it sounds like there's a way to do it. But next thing, I guess, to compare on that side is you're in that trail town, you're around all these locals. What is the difference with resupplying in these trail towns compared to American resupplying? Like, can you, I'm assuming there's not a giant grocery store in even these small towns. So yeah, what's the, what's the difference with resupplying? Okay, actually, resupplying is so much more easier in Europe than in the US because it's much more populated. Usually in almost all countries, you come across some sort of shop every day. 
So uh, just keep in mind, some shops are closed on Sundays. Most countries, uh, very, very many countries, they have different laws. So usually from, you can't count on finding a shop on Sundays in many countries. Mm-hmm. But be, aside, that aside, uh, there's little village stores uh, wherever you go, except for, let's say, high mountain areas. If you go to the Alps or the Pyrenees where nobody lives, there is no shop. But there you have uh, mountain huts. Uh, they will sell you food, they will have restaurants, or they will sell you basic supplies. So in Europe, I usually carry food for maybe two or three days, and very rarely I carry more food. Wow. Um, Wow, yeah, that's that's impressive. I mean, so there are longer, I guess it's the wilderness versus the quote-unquote cultural experiences. You go through more areas. And this is a question that's burning in my mind, and... You may be like, this is a stupid, stupid American question, <laughs> but this is a question burning in my mind at least, and I hope hopefully it's burning in some of these other listeners' mind. Can you buy ramen in these areas for hiking, or do you need to pre-ship yourself ramen? No, you can buy ramen. It's actually very, very popular in almost every country I've been. Uh, there's just some countries that are peculiar, like France. French people are like so, so gourmet style. It's even difficult to find like uh, your, your typical dehydrated hiker stuff. Mm-hmm. So or, or dehydrated mashed potatoes. So France is a problem, but most other countries ramen uh, is no problem. You will you will get them in sort of like Bulgarian flavor, but they are there. Okay. So no no problem with that. Uh, but let me touch on two more things when it comes to uh, to to resupply. Yeah. Uh, actually, because there are so many supermarkets and there's so many different cultures, don't go like, okay, I have to carry this little Pepsi can stove and eat my ramen every night. Mm-hmm. You are missing the best part of hiking in Europe, which is which is uh, tasting the local food. Mm-hmm. So let's say you're hiking through France. Uh, don't eat ramen. You just go to a boulangerie, to a bakery, and eat butter cross sauce every day or pain au chocolat, which is chocolate cross sauce. <laughs> and it's better than anything else you would get ever in the U.S. So uh, you get fresh baguette, then you buy cheese, you buy fromage, uh, or you go, let's say you hike in Italy. Don't eat ramen. You go to a supermarket, and they have what's called a hot table. So in a supermarket, they will sell you slices of pizza. And this is not American Domino's pizza. This is like really Italian, fantastic, good pizza. Mm-hmm. They will sell you lasagna. So uh, don't do not do ramen. Uh, the best thing about hiking in Europe is the food. Taste the local food. <laughs> How to go on a through hike and gain weight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, actually, this is this is really a point. Like, uh, uh, it's it's uh, it's very difficult to to lose weight on a European through hike. <laughs> then, then I have another tip for you. You haven't touched on it because apparently you're not aware of the problem. Mm-hmm. The, the bigger problem is water, because mm-hmm. uh, Europe is so populated that natural sources are well. You don't want to drink from most natural sources. Of course, if you're in the high mountains, there is uh, there is springs you can drink from them. Usually, there's there's even they even have a trough right next to them, or they are century old springs. So, but you're hiking, let's say in the lowlands, uh, um, you cannot drink from the rivers because there's they are, they will be polluted. Mm-hmm. So, now the question is, where do you get water from in Central Europe? Any idea? There's a, there's a great trick for that. Any idea, Constantine? Um, I'm assuming because I've done a little bit of hiking in the U.S. that you can, if you push the miles enough, you can go from water fountain to water fountain in towns. So maybe, maybe in the same vein. No, that depends on the country. Some countries like Italy or Spain, they have water fountains, but the trick is actually is cemeteries, cemeteries. (laughs) Okay. Because, uh, in central Europe, uh, cemeteries, you plant flower on the graves, plant flowers and bushes or god knows what and you have to water them in summer so cemeteries in central europe always always have a water tap and this is where you can easily refill your water bottles and it's drinking water they are connected with the with a water system so it's drinking water so what is usually next to a cemetery would be a hose spigot or some type of water water quote-unquote water source yeah, there's a water source, but what's next to a cemetery? Next to a cemetery is usually a church. Oh. So what is inside the church, there's usually an electrical outlet because oh. they have to clean the church with a vacuum cleaner and the organ is usually operated with via electricity. So this is where you where you recharge your cell phone and where you recharge your power bank. 
Wow. So you you always plan your hikes that you have your lunch break close to a cemetery or the church because it it serves all your needs. Wow, that is a great piece of information to have. Like usually as a general rule in life, I try to stay away from cemeteries just because I'm a weird superstitious guy, but maybe if I do more European hiking, I might have to visit more cemeteries. That that is a really good piece of information to have. I do, I would not have guessed that at all. So the only problem with cemeteries is if you go far north or far south, no more water in the cemetery because it's so hot or so cold, so they don't have like plants on the graves anymore. Mm -hmm. And in Eastern Europe, cemeteries are not connected with the central water system. So they have uh, wells. So the problem is you can get water from the wells, but don't think a lot about what goes into the groundwater in a cemetery. Just get the water and, and don't think too much. <laughs> so I guess a little tangent here. Is there even a point to carry a filter? Because it sounds like most of the sources you're drinking are spring waters. And I guess people have different preferences with filtering spring water. But it sounds like most sources you're drinking are either man-made spring waters. So like you're not doesn't sound like you're doing a whole lot of filtration. Exactly. When I hike in Europe, I just carry something like Aquamira or Micropur just as a backup. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, for example, if I go into the mountains and I'm not quite sure is the spring really drinkable, but I hardly ever use it. As you said, in Europe, uh, at least at least in populated areas, it will be man-made or man-treated water or spring water. So don't don't waste lots of time and and wait on on filtering. So I guess. And, my, and this is where my mind's going, at least, and, it, and this might be a weird comparison, but my mind's comparing it to somewhat desert hiking is like your miles sometimes become contingent on if you can hit that cemetery or if you can hit that spring, like your miles become contingent on water a lot of the time again, it sounds like. Yes, it's water, food, and um, actually my main problem with hiking in Europe is camping. Where do I camp? Yes, yes. And uh, now we start and uh, we open a different can of worms here. Yeah. Because I think one of the things that keeps North Americans away from hiking Europe is the idea that you cannot wild camp in Europe. Yes. So they think it's forbidden, which is technically true. In most European countries, wild camping, free camping, except for uh, Scandinavia, is more or less forbidden. Scandinavia has a thing called it's the every man's right, the right to, uh, so you can uh, in Sweden, in Norway, and in Finland, you can camp anywhere on uh, in the open. But in the rest of Europe, it's more or less forbidden. Huh. But, but, uh, this is just theory and i'm glad that it is that it is legally forbidden because if it was allowed everybody would take their camper van and they would go and destroy the landscape leave trash and god knows what so i'm glad that it is forbidden but that doesn't mean that you cannot do it i've hiked like i don't know i think i've hiked twenty thousand miles in europe or even more and i was maybe caught twice or three times and never ever anything bad happened i never had to go away i was never ever chased away so uh, the trick is you just have to be discreet. You have mm -hmm. to find a place in the forest, tuck yourself away so nobody sees you, and you won't have a problem. Don't ever light a fire. This will get you into trouble. Don't leave any trash. But if you find a discreet spot, no problem. And if you are caught, if you are caught by the landowner, you are more likely to be, inv to be invited for breakfast than to be chased away. <laughs> That's a good problem to have. So, so I guess the comparison is you hear the term stealth camping a lot in the U.S. So it's kind of like a form of stealth camping because like, like you said, it's technically forbidden, but 99% of the time, the landowner, the land usage, it's just they don't want it being overpopulated or trash. So like if you're doing it respectfully, it sounds like it's kind of a green light to go. Exactly. So you have two options. You can either, uh, if there is somebody around, you can ask, you go there and ask. Mm -hmm. And people would be like, because nobody does it, people would be like, okay, go ahead, go here and there. And they will actually even bring you food or uh, help you because it's so rare. Nobody does it. Mm -hmm. So, but it's very difficult to locate the landowner. So I just go look, I just go into the forest. So, so I plan my daily hike or my, uh, my daily mileage around, hey, I have to end up in some sort of forest at night so I can find a discreet spot where to hide away and, uh, and camp. Mm. So, yeah. 
Welcome to our pocket snack ad break. Now is the time during the show, during your hike, during your adventure, to reach into that hip belt pocket, to reach into that gear pouch, and treat yourself. Get yourself a nice little snack as we go through a bit of our quote-unquote ad. Can it be an ad if we're mostly talking about our own company? Don't know. That's uh, that's for better minds than ourselves. So, welcome to the pocket snack ad break. Um, sit down, walk, do what you will, but make sure to grab that snack as you listen in. So we wanted to talk about Eleven Skies. Eleven Skies is the company that we formed two years ago and we are hyper-focused in creating shorts and pants for the outdoors person, the hiker, the backpacker, the rafter, the bicyclist, anything and everything. Built a product that will last for any adventure ahead and it's also born, the very name is born from the Eleven National Scenic Trails so you can be proud to be representing promoting and bringing about awareness to the 11 National Scenic Trails and the very trails that gave us our name and continue to inspire us. So make sure to follow along with us at 11 Skies on Instagram, Facebook, and make sure to go check out our website, 11skies.com, spelled 11skys.com, where you can learn all about us and you can get yourself some gear today. So that's the quick pocket snack ad break. Hope you enjoyed your snack. If you're still chewing, keep on keeping on. Let's get back into the show. I, I guess that that I can compare it a little bit to at least the NCT in the U.S. is a lot of the areas with the land management systems is they would have forests, but they wouldn't specifically say, hey, this is a national forest where you can camp in. It was like you found a thicket of trees and you're like, well, it's a forest um, and I'm doing everything, quote unquote, the right way. So as long as I'm respectful I should be able to camp here and if something happens and somebody comes, I can kind of talk. So I would be curious using again E1 as an example and this even goes into the map overlays. Sorry about that. This even goes into the map overlays a little bit is when you're looking at, I know this is a long trail system, the E1, but are there even camping icons? Like is there places that say, hey, this is a designated camping area or that's just not existing at all? Is not existing at all because camping is either uh, stealth camping, mm -hmm. which is legally forbidden, or it will be uh, commercial campgrounds, and you don't want to be there because it will be crowded with screaming children and camper vans, and it it it, it will be horrible and very expensive. Okay. So, but let's go, let's go, let's see, let's take the E1, which is actually a good example. The E1 starts at the North Cape in Norway, so all the way, which is basically almost half of the trail. All the way until you reach Denmark, you can free camp because it's the everyman's right uh, in Scandinavia. You can camp anywhere, mm -hmm. except, of course, like in towns or but everywhere in, in the landscape you can camp. So as soon as you hit Denmark, uh, it will be forbidden wherever you go. You just have to look for a discreet uh, forest or tuck away in the bushes or whatever. And uh, Germany, Denmark, Switzerland will be a bit complicated because it's very, very densely populated, mm -hmm. but still possible. I've done it all the way. I've done the entire E1. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you reach Italy, um, you will reach areas where that were populated like a century ago, maybe a decade ago. But you are like in mountainous areas where people have moved away because it doesn't, it's, it, it's, they, they um, well, they, they've moved to the big cities, so there's no more farms, there's no more ranch, uh, no, people don't have any cattle anymore. So it's basically you will, what you will find is like these uh, dry stone wall terraces mm -hmm. that people use to create, like to to have, to uh, build, uh, to grow corn or, or wheat or to have the cattle there. But they're abandoned because people have moved to the cities, so they are perfect for wild camping. So and, and perfect in the way because the people have moved away, but they left the vineyards, they left the fig trees, they left the orange trees. So basically, <laughs> you have all the free fruit uh, you can harvest because nobody is there who, who claims them. Okay. So so legally, it's still forbidden, but it's very easy because nobody is there who can catch you. So this might be a tangent, and this might just be to put my own mind at ease, but you said out of all the 20,000 miles you've done, all the wild camping, there were like two or three times that somebody came and talked to you. Was one of those times like law enforcement? And if so, how did that how did that conversation go? No, no. see, the only people you will meet in the forest, let's, let's say in the normal cases, you are somewhere tucked away in the forest. Mm -hmm. So there's only like three possibilities of people who can uh, discover you. 
it's uh, either hunters, they're your biggest enemy because the hunters, you're basically a threat to them because when you're camping there, they won't find any animals mm-hmm. because the, you will scare the animals away. So they might make a fuss, but they can't do anything because they are not law enforcement. So if they are really angry with you, they have to call the police. Mm-hmm. And if I was a police officer sitting like in my nice office in town, and there's this guy saying, hey, there's a wild camper in the forest here. Get your butt into your police car and get get here. They will say, hey, we have better things to do than chasing <laughs> wild campers. So your chances are very high you get away with it. Don't make a fuss. Don't discuss with don't discuss with the people. If if I'm caught, I always offer. I'm so sorry. I didn't know this is your property. If you want me to leave, I'm away in five minutes. Okay. And then all the time, people calm down and say, Hey, I, I haven't lit a fire. I don't leave any trash. If you want me to go away, I pack up immediately. And then the problem is solved. And usually people say, Then Hey, no problem. Stay here. You are no. You don't. You don't pose any threat. Okay, that puts my my own personal mind at ease. Okay, so we've kind of talked. And, 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 and the other people who can who can detect you is like people walking their dogs. Yeah, and they are not interested. And it's like forest workers, and they are usually just they are employed to do whatever to cut trees. They are not interested at all. They just say, "Hey, we want to cut this tree. You are in the way. That's it." So mm-hmm. so other people are won't won't be in the forest at night. So there's nobody who can actually catch you or see you. Okay. Again, that yeah, that puts my own mind at ease, and yeah, it, it sounds very similar to stealth camping. If you're respectful about it, if you kind of know, I, I guess the right word is know the right area to go and how to get in at night, get out at the morning. Like, there's ways to go about it and leave the least amount of impact. So, I guess so. We've talked about food, we've talked about water, we've talked about the land and the camping itself. But I guess another point of the land that would be interesting to discuss here is who manages this land? So I, I know that's a very broad question for since there's so many different countries, but I guess comparison here, again, let's use the example of the E1. So for like the Pacific Crest Trail, you have the PCTA manage most of their trail or the ATU have the ATC manage most of their trail. Who's maintaining these trail systems? Uh, basically, they are maintaining themselves. Um, how should I put it? Uh, I think we have to go two or two more steps backward and talk about the concept of private property. I think this is key to understanding what, what the big difference between uh, hiking in Europe and the US. Mm-hmm. Um, Europe uh, has been populated uh, and used for agricultural purposes for centuries, really for centuries. So let's go back to, let's say, to the 15th century. You are, you are owing land. You have this big plot of fields, and, but you have two sons. So you die, and your big plot of land will be divided into two plots of lands for your two sons. Mm-hmm. So these two sons uh, have two sons as well, and the daughters get some pieces of land as dowry, and you go on for centuries and centuries. So what will happen? You have a big patchwork system of land. So you have landowner A is next to landowner B and C and D, and it's all like tiny, tiny parcels of land. So basically, in order to access the land, you have to cross landowner A or B's land to get to landowner C land, C land. Mm-hmm. So if for whatever reason, landowner A decides, hey, you cannot cross my land to access your field, uh, this is just not possible the whole village will lynch him because like nobody can access their land anymore. If, so, if one guy says, no, you can't cross my land. So because of this, if there is a trail or if there is a road or forest road or four wheel, whatever, two track, it's ba- you can walk on it because this is used by the landowners to access their plot of land. Hmm. So I guess the best comparison for American hiking is it's, I guess it's not exactly this way, but it's similar to four service roads. Like there can be private property on either side, but the access point or I guess the easement, nobody can own that public like easement or that public right away to access other parcels of land. Exactly. So so this makes this creates endless hiker, hiking opportunities in Europe because like wherever there's a trail, wherever there's a two track, you can use it there's very very few exceptions like uh if it's like uh 
God knows what, National Park, or the, the area is closed off for recovering. Or, but this is very, very rare. If there is a trail, you can, uh, uh, you can use it. Okay. And, the, and the law goes even further, because uh, uh, Europe is so populated, uh, all forest areas are open to public use. Mm -hmm. So even if uh, this piece of forest you are in, you're in right now is privately owned, you have the right to collect mushrooms, to collect berries, and to be there. So uh, you cannot you cannot cut down a tree, but you have the right to collect mushrooms and berries. For you can use this this even private property for recreational purposes. Oh. So the landowners who own the forest, they are used to people being there. It's, it's just normal. They, they cannot do anything about this is this is the law if there's forest even if you own it you cannot like uh, uh fence it off and, uh, uh, and and prevent people from entering it okay and i guess another depth of this question and this might just be my own ignorance from not having experienced european hiking but so the land or the trail is managed by people just walking on these uh, private easements or whatever you want to say. But... Okay, okay, so, sorry, I, I, I finished the, the question. So, so basically, you don't have to do trail maintenance like uh, cutting cutting of weeds or, get, uh, or removing blow-down trees. It, you don't have to do it because this is done by uh, either by hikers because there is so much traffic on the trail or by the landowner because he, they can't access their land anymore oh. uh, if there is a blow-down tree. So the, the trail organization, the only thing they have to do is waymarking. That's all. Wow. So because the upkeep, the maintenance is done by the landowners. As I said, all these trails are used to access forest, fields, God knows what, or through traffic. So they're maintaining themselves. So uh, again, this is just me trying to wrap my head around this. Is like, let's take example for the E1. In comparison, um, let's use the PCT. So like in comparison, you leave a trail town on the PCT, and the first 10 miles might be fantastic because it's easier to access and maintain that trail. And then you get deeper away from these towns and the trail maintenance might drop a little because it's harder to maintain the quote unquote wilderness area around there. But I guess in Europe or specifically the E1, is it just you're always so close to, I guess, villages or homesteads or farms that it never gets too deep into the wilderness that there has to be that maintenance? Okay, Iwan is, is a bad example because most part of the Iwan is in Scandinavia, okay. where there is real wilderness left. So if you take this away, because there you actually have to build trail. What they do there in Scandinavia, they don't build trail, they just put cairns and you walk through, you walk cross country more or less. Okay. So, uh, but if you go to Central Europe, uh, Eastern Europe or, or Southern Europe, uh, what you just said is correct. Like, uh, because these trails are used for traffic or to access whatever pro property, uh, there is never ever like totally neglected stuff. Hmm. And if you go to high mountain areas where there is no like, you, there's no forests or there's no agricultural use, then it's used for recreational uh, uses. So the trail will be maintained by mountain clubs or by um, the local community. Okay, okay, that kind of puts into context for me and I, I hope it puts into context for everybody listening. So I guess another parallel of this is We've kind of gotten into the land usage part, the food, the water. So another parallel that I guess is not a versus, but compared to American versus European hiking is the concept of trail angels. And I saw you put this on a note on here is that there are no trail angels in Europe. Um, yeah, why? Uh, I guess I guess the only question is why. And yep, that's that's my question. Well, because you don't need them. I mean, if you, there's a there's a supermarket around every corner, there's a cemetery everywhere, so you just don't need them. Why should anybody put cash water for you if you can just ask at the next house? Hmm. Uh, why should anybody ca uh, set up trail magic in like with with chocolate bars or whatever? You can just go to the next supermarket. Okay. So, and why should anybody host hikers because, uh, if there's like an albergue or a hotel or private rooms everywhere? So they are just not needed. So it doesn't mean that people are less friendly than in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, people are friendly everywhere around the world. It's just like if, uh, if I meet a hiker in a German forest, I don't assume he needs help. If he, if he runs out of water, he just descends into the next village and gets water there. Or if he needs food, he just goes to the next village. So um, you don't assume the help is needed, so you don't give help and you don't offer help. But if you run out of water, if you, uh, uh, you just ask at the next house, and people will be more than ha happy to help you. 
I've mm. never had any problems. Like if I if I ring the bell and say, hey, sorry, I ran out of water. There's no cemetery here or no water source. Uh, can you fill up my water bottles? People will be delighted. They you, Usually half of the time you end up being given fruit or chocolate or whatever because it's so rare that somebody asks you. So, for food or water. So I guess safety is a big part of it because like in the US, you have trail angels that will have a number that you can call instead of trying to hitch down a 18 mile busy highway to get to the resupply town and then bring you back to trail or leave water in the desert. So I guess safety is a factor in, it sounds like in Europe, it, it, you're within a distance or threshold that you can always satisfy your needs or you're not so far out there that you have to be, I guess, completely self-sufficient. I, 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 so it just sounds like sa safety is not a big factor as much. Well, first of all, you don't have to hitchhike in Europe because we have public transportation. Oh. So uh, there's no, I don't know any trail in Central Europe that cannot be accessed by train or bus. Actually, people who create these trails, the local tourist organizations, it's it's like a prerequisite. If there's a trail, it has to be ex it has to be accessible by public transport. Hmm. So each every terminus is usually located next to a train station or at least a bus station. Wow. And so so it, it's really no problem. You don't you never ever have to hitchhike. Why should you? There's uh, buses everywhere. Huh. Well, that is that makes it very convenient. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, so. But yeah, go ahead. I don't want to get off this tangent if you had more to uh, to add to it, but I was I was starting to try to wrap my head around you've you've talked about the resupply, we've talked about the land, we've talked about the water. So I guess the next thing is the budget that we need to talk about. And you put in here is like the budget in each country. How does it differ? So how does the budget differ for each European country that you're going through? Is there a different amount of money you need to set aside? Like, I know that's a broad question, but I guess let's try to tackle budget. Okay, there's a, a, a broad difference between uh, budget in one uh, in, in different countries. Mm -hmm. First of all, before we get into this, um, uh, right now, really, right now is the time for North Americans to go to Europe because the dollar is so strong right now and the euro is so weak that the euro actually is all par with the dollar now. Mm -hmm. So it uh, it used to be one euro, one dollar sixty, one dollar forty. Now one euro is one dollar. So it's for you, for you guys, it's incredibly cheap. So if you ever considered going to Europe, do it now. Don't wait too long. This is incredible. You'll have you'll have a blast. It's so cheap. Hmm. So, but inside Europe, the differences uh, there's big big differences. So, if you're on the budget, avoid two areas. Definitely avoid Scandinavia. Norway, uh, a little bit less Sweden and Finland, but Norway is one of the most expensive countries in the entire world. To give you an example, I was once hiked. I once hiked the E1 to the North Cape, and I, w I wanted to celebrate my birthday, so I did like a 30-mile day just to get to this one uh, supermarket at a gas station at a highway. Mm -hmm. So I, I, j I really got there in time, just 10 minutes before closing time, and it was my whatever birthday and i stood there in this mini market and they charged me five dollars for a chocolate bar huh. and, and i'm like no fucking way i pay five dollars so i actually ended celebrating uh, with bread and cheese so but this is <laughs> this is really normal like uh chocolate uh all sorts of sweet stuff they have a sugar tax in norway okay so norway is incredibly expensive Norway has, for example, a great hut system in the um, in the fjell, like in in this open tundra uh, where you can, where the e one goes through. So you can actually hike from hut to hut. The huts are very comfortable. You can buy food there. You can get accommodation. But keep in mind, a bed in a dormitory in a hut, one night in a dorm in a Norwegian hut, will cost you seventy dollars. Wow. And you share this dormitory with twenty other people. Wow, so expensive. so, yeah, Norway is incredibly expensive. Like in town, it's a bit cheaper, but Norway is very expensive. As is Switzerland. Hmm. Switzerland is not a bar of chocolate is something like two or three euro, but still, still, relatively, relatively expensive. So, if you go to the rest of the uh, countries like Central Europe, countries like uh, Germany, France, uh, Spain, Italy. They are basically, you can compare it to the U.S. They are the same sort of like price level. Mm 
Okay. Generally, food is a food and accommodation is cheaper in Europe than it is in uh, in the U.S. So uh, expect to pay for a hotel for a nice hotel something like fifty seventy dollars. Wow, that's not bad at all. So, and then we come to the best part of Europe, which is Eastern Europe. Hmm. Eastern Europe is still like uh, has a the lowest living standard but still it's like we're not several countries it's still like a de decent standard um there it's like uh to give an example when i hike to romania a private room like and really nice private rooms like with wi-fi or your own your own bathroom toilet everything costs you something like 20 dollars, 25 dollars. <laughs> wow super nice so you get whole holiday apartments, which is also very, very, uh, very, very popular. You can get holiday apartments with several rooms for like $40, $45. And you can like put like a whole family in there. So Eastern Europe is really, really cheap. Like uh, a, a glass of wine costs you something like $1, bottle wow. of beer, $1, uh, a meal, 5 to $10. It's really, really cheap. So I guess there's so much variety that depending on your budget, depending what you want to spend, depending on your comfort level, you can kind of look at Europe and then iron out which country you should go to, which area you should explore. Yeah, so I guess there's so much variety there. Yes, and um, uh, we have talked um, about the OSM maps before, and now yeah. uh, I wanted to show you sort of like my uh, my favorite pastime. What do I do if I have free time and if I'm thinking of like where can I go next? I go to this one website, which is called waymarkedtrails.org, mm -hmm. and uh, I've uh, recommended this website to you, and uh, I asked you before we, re we, before we uh, started recording, have a look at the website and please Constantine now tell me what did you see when you compared Europe to uh, the US on this website it's uh, like I was saying yeah it's it's overwhelming if you zoom out far enough it looks like the entire entire European area is just shaded in trail systems so like the shading is red and blue and it looks like it's just solid chunks of red and blue that's how many trail systems there are Exactly. So if you, and if you go to the US, you see the, the Triple Crown, you see the 80, the Pacific Crest Trail and the Continental Divide Trail, but that's it. Yeah. So uh, what I want to say is like there's endless hiking possibilities in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, just to give an example, Germany, which is the size of Montana, has the same amount of hiking trails, like 300,000 kilometers as the entire US. So, so it's basically you. It, you really have the problem of where do I go? Mm. And uh, uh, the, the, my goal for for doing this podcast with you is like, I feel so ashamed because if Americans ever venture to Europe, they always always do two trails only. They either do uh, the Camino Frances in Spain, which is about the worst hiking in whole Europe, mm. or they do the Tour de Mont Blanc, which is like uh, around the uh, Mont Blanc mountain in Switzerland, which is awfully expensive, totally crowded and I would never ever go there hmm. so they miss all these opportunities th that there are and it's so easy like just go to waymarktrails.org have a look like think hey my ancestors come from god knows where Romania or Poland or Italy or whatever <laughs> if this is like where you want to go oh I'm interested in uh, Italian art or I'm interested in Irish whiskey or whatever just choose your country zoom into waymarktrails.org and you'll find a plethora of hiking trails I mean, so don't get stuck with like all these all these two trails only. Yeah, I mean, like even even my own personal experience, I've been pretty much revolving my life around hiking for the past seven years at this point. And in the last hour or two hours we've shared, I've learned more about European trails and European hiking than I have in the past seven years. Like it's just the I guess just the access of information. So I I can't thank you enough for sharing the information with me and then just with everybody listening. I mean it opens eyes and the mind to just so many possibilities. So, and also like I found like uh, right now more and more Americans come to Europe because of the very favorable exchange rate, but then they are afraid of the language barrier and they mm. go to, to Britain or to Ireland. So again, nice hiking there, but don't limit yourself. Don't be afraid of the, of the language barrier. Just, just, there's so many other opportunities and uh yeah I, I don't think you will regret it yeah and 
we, we should touch on one last subject now. I don't know whether actually this exists in the U.S., Constantine. Do you, have you heard of credit card hiking? No, but I was so intrigued. So for people listening, before we started the show, we were uh, going back and forth with ideas, and you sent some bullet points to what kind of potentials we could touch on, and I saw that there, and I'm like, what is this? Like, no, I, I've never heard of it, and I'm so glad you touched on it. Okay, credit card hiking is is sort of a, a very f popular term in the uh, in the European hiking community because credit card hiking is the utmost ultralight hiking you can possibly do, which means you don't pack anything but your credit card. <laughs> uh, yeah, because you don't need anything, you don't need any luggage uh, because you can hike from one hotel to the next, and you don't have to carry any cook stoves or cooking stuff or whatever because you cannot just hike from one restaurant to another so you can hike with a base weight of one kilogram or two pounds you just need another pair of clothes and that's it so just pack your credit card and go from one to another there's so many accommodations this is the idea i, I told you like uh, hiking hiking trails are big business in europe at least in central europe mm -hmm. so uh more and more trails get created uh or established to bring tourists into these little villages and towns and europeans don't go camping they hike from one accommodation to the next and they don't cook on a camping stove they go to restaurants this is what the hiking is about because you want to taste the local food you want to drink the local wine so bring, just bring your credit card. Don't bring so much stuff. Bring your credit card and taste the local food, taste the local produce, and uh, go to and stay with the people. I mean, I give you one. Uh, uh, I've just I've just written my 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 fourth book, and it uh, it introduces like several trails for twenty five trails in uh, all around the world, mostly in Europe. Mm -hmm. So there is in this book there is a, a beer trail. There's a one train in Germany, actually northern, in northern Bavaria, in an area called Franconia, which has the highest density of breweries in the entire world. So in this area, there is one brewery for 5,000 people. I'm not kidding you. One independent brewery for 5,000 people. So basically on this trail, you hike from one brewery to the next one. So uh, you don't want to camp, you just bring a credit card, drink beer, taste the local beer, taste the local food, and uh, stay in accommodation there. There's also a trail for wine drinkers, which is in Austria. You, um, there's self-service refrigerators along the trail where you can taste the local wine because you have all the vineyards. Mm -hmm. And the owner of the vineyards put like wine bottles in, the, in these refrigerators and you can just pay there. You leave the money there and take a bottle of wine. Oh, wow. So there's a trail for schnapps drinkers as well, because there is one trail that uh, goes through a town. They have three distilleries. You can visit the distilleries, you get free samples, and you can drink schnapps there. So this is just an, an, an idea. There is so many trails for specialties. Like there's gourmet trails for food tasting, wine tasting, God knows what. So um, so whenever I listen to reports from American thru-hikers coming to Europe and they do all these speed records mm -hmm. and they say, hey, we've thru-hiked Europe in like two weeks. I'm like, bloody hell. I mean, this is great. You did it. Good for you. But you missed the point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hiking in Europe, like the best part is, as I said, the culture is the food, is the people. So uh, giving another example, like I've hiked one great trail in Romania, the Via Transylvanica. It's a trail through rural Romania where you see more people in horse carts than in tractors because people are still so poor they cannot afford tractors. So it's not Amish. It's not a religious, it's not a religious reason. They have horse carts because they cannot afford uh, uh, machinery. Yeah. So there you can actually see people living in the uh, in the mountains with their sheep, with their cows, and these men, these shepherds, do their own cheese. They are actually paid in cheese. <laughs> so so you can wow. watch them. They live there the whole summer. They don't speak a single word of English, so forget it. Uh, they don't have a smartphone either. But uh, they will be very eager to sell you that cheese to give you the the, the milk fresh from the cow. So you can see how life was like like 100 years ago. And these people, they, they offer you accommodation. You can stay with like these old ladies who still live in these villages. And they will put you up in their old living room or the kids' room. And they will serve you the food that they grow in the garden, everything that's left over, the, the milk from their cow. So it's really like if you're camping there and if you rush through there, you're missing the point. Mm -hmm. 
I, I think, <laughs> well, one, I think you put it perfectly that just like the concept of European hiking is the experience. Like uh, the, I guess, I don't know if the correct term here is difference, but like the U.S., you are spending a lot of time in the wilderness and doing a speed record on that. That really lets you push your mind and body. And I don't want to say you're not missing out on anything when you're going fast, but you're not missing out as much on a fully immersive cultural experience. You're missing out on a mountainscape that you might be able to enjoy a little bit more if you went slower. But if you try to push the miles and just run through these trails in Europe, it sounds like you're missing the point. Exactly. So uh, one interesting conclusion for myself is, as I said, I've hiked 40,000 miles altogether. And I started out in the U.S. on the Triple Crown. Mm -hmm. And I'm used to hiking 900 to 1,000 kilometers per month in the U.S., no problem. Mm -hmm. And then I realized in Europe, I'm so much, I'm so much more slower. And then I figured out, okay, this is not because I'm hiking slower. It's because I spend so much more time on sightseeing. Yeah. In the U.S., let's say Pacific Crest Trail or Appalachian Trail, you go to a trail town, and the only thing you want to see is the local McDonald's or Taco Bells, <laughs> maybe the laundry, or you do laundry, and you, the rest of the time you hang out in, the, in your Motel 6 mm -hmm. because there's not much more to see. Yeah. Like in Europe, uh, uh, the problem is every town you go to, really every town has at least five castles, three churches, five museums, and a whole lot of, a whole lot of restaurants. Wow. So if you want to rest and do sightseeing, you'll be... You, you you will leave town more tired than you entered it. <laughs> so I usually plan two rest days in uh, in your, on European hikes. One day for really resting and doing town chores, yeah. and the other day for doing sightseeing and eating the food, looking at all these museums. And so yeah, that's that's a big difference. Plan more time. Yeah, and even the frequency. So like on a U.S. trail, you might resupply in one town and then have a week long until you even access another area that is populated but then it sounds like in european countries you can have a town every day every two days every three days and then each of those towns have so much intricacies that the time spent is yeah spent hiking walking but then you have more opportunity to spend two hours touring a museum touring a church it's like it, it again it sounds just fully immersive in an experience instead of just specifically the term hiking Exactly. That's that's the point. So this one is a different concept. So don't come with a. Of course, you can come with the American through hiker concept, doing miles and being fast. You can do it. Uh, you you can see all you you can see beautiful landscape as well. But I think what makes it so special in Europe is like the cultural stuff. So take time to immerse yourself into that. I love it, and I just think to uh, circling back very quickly that the world would be a better and happier place if everybody was paid in cheese. I think if <laughs> cheese was the currency, many more people would be happy. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Uh, so, Christine, um, yeah, we wouldn't, wouldn't be able to get into everything in depth, but I hope this is a good intro to European hiking, um, for, not versus American, but just the similarities, differences, which a whole lot. So I hope we unpacked what, um, yeah, we wanted to share here. Is there any kind of last minute info that we didn't touch on that you want to touch on quickly or is this a good introduction for people and then they can kind of take it from here and go research and go develop how they want to exactly so if you want to if you look for food for thought go to waymarktrails.org and then uh yeah that's a good starting point Waymark and then just waymarktrails.org then think of the exchange rate and i think there's no stopping you from coming to europe right now <laughs> go, go out and get go out and experience it yes i'm a i'm personally wanting to go so thank you christine um another wonderful chat so yes i really appreciate your time okay thank you bye bye well, that'll do it for this week. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to pop on over to Apple Podcasts or whatever player you use and leave a rating and a review. It helps other people find the show. This podcast is brought to you by 11 Skies, gear that will change with you, not for you. So give us a check out at 11skies.com and that's the show. See you next week.